probably going to be a short one because I got to pick up Sasha at school in a little bit. So see how it goes. Just a bunch of stuff going on. Like the whole January 6th footage being released by Tucker Carlson. It's pretty instructive. You see the uh, shaman guy walking around with the police all around him. Nobody's bothering him. It's kind of friendly. And that guy's got, what, like four years in jail. I think he's some mentally ill actor <laughs> from Arizona. And I'd already seen footage of it, uh, you know, like a year ago, more maybe. But it's just coming out to the, to the public at large. It's kind of incontrovertible, right? It just shows this was not a violent insurrection. I don't know if people know that uh, exactly zero people were killed by the insurrectionists, the dangerous insurrectionists, a bunch of uh, Trumpers with clogged arteries, basically um, protesting and being led inside the Capitol, killed nobody. The uh, officer Sidnick, he was uh, not injured. He died a couple of days later, not injured by the protesters. And nobody was killed except Ashley Babbitt by one of the uh, Capitol security guards. So at the time, I was like, how is this an insurrection? I, when I heard it described as that, I would have pictured like army trucks being you know, seized by rogue military and tanks and just kind of blowing up half of the Capitol and killing a whole bunch of Congress people. That would have been an insurrection. And that would have deserved the title of insurrection and being compared to 9-11. That would have been similar. But what actually happened was nothing like that. Congress is back in session either that day or the next day. It was really didn't disrupt anything. They did virtually no damage. And again, they didn't kill anybody. And they were unarmed. Just a bunch of, uh, as I said, clogged artery Trumpers marching around the, uh, the Capitol building. And this to me was sort of the epitome of the Orwellian psyops the last five years, probably the dumbest one, the most that epitomizes the, uh, the Orwellian saying that the first and most essential command from the party was to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. Like this one, everybody saw that nothing happened and yet it was insurrection, threat to democracy, all these grandiose descriptions of what it was. And it's funny because I said it at the time uh, when I did this podcast, you can go back to January of 2021 and this is the, that was the only podcast where I got real pushback. Of all the stuff I've talked about, the mRNA shot being dangerous and linked to all the excess death, and in my opinion, the cause of all the excess deaths, all the stuff I was talking about for two years, three years, um, the one I got the most pushback on, I'm not talking about Twitter pushback from like normies who called me QAnon for finding outdoor masking creepy, right? Those guys will drop the QAnon at you if you disagree with any part of the narrative. Oh, you're full QAnon just because you think outdoor masking is signaling rather than science. Um, anything that, that goes against the narrative is QAnon. So that one doesn't work anymore. But I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people who listen to this podcast and are somewhat open-minded. And even among smart people, I got pushback, open-minded people. They were like, no, you're underselling this hugely. This is much more serious than you're making it out to be. And I was like, I don't, you know, I don't see it. I mean, it's possible, but what? nothing happened. And now that you know, everyone's seen the footage of that guy just walking around with the cops, seems like that's actually the case. And of course, there's all the unanswered questions about the guy, Ray Epps, who is, you know, an FBI, is the undercover, like getting them to go in, the cops letting them in voluntarily, all, all these things that really weren't addressed. But I don't really care about that. I mean, it's just obvious, even from what we knew before all of this, that this was not a, a serious insurrection. It wasn't a threat to the US government in any way. And any more than you could say, well, they intended to, you know, it was very bad. They intended to overthrow democracy. The, the fact that they were inept is not 
a defense, you know, but it's kind of like saying if I intend to kill you with a voodoo doll and I stick pins in a voodoo doll that's made out to be you, I can't be tried for attempted murder. Now, if I shoot at you and miss, I can be tried for attempted murder because one of those things we've sort of collectively agreed as society actually had a chance to kill you and the other one did not. And I think this is in voodoo doll territory, not even in terms of overthrowing the U.S. government, the, the effort that was put forth, if that were even the intent, which it doesn't seem like it really was. It seemed like just a protest. But if that were the intent, it was so lame that I don't think it can qualify as a true attempt. So I posted something about that saying this was the, the ultimate psyop. I can't believe people fell for this. And some people said, think of the source. You're, you're quoting Tucker Carlson, who lies. Now, first of all, I actually think Tucker Carlson has done journalism for the last couple of years. He's actually posted things that the powerful don't want posted. You see Mitch McConnell, Republican, and Chuck Schumer, two different parties, powerful people, both want him off the air. They both want him to stop posting this stuff. So he's doing stuff that both parties do not want posted. To me, that's journalism. That's the definition of journalism, publishing things that powerful people that are in the public interest that powerful people would otherwise not like to see published. So he's doing journalism, but it doesn't matter what you think about him. Okay, maybe he's a white supremacist or whatever you think he is or whatever you've been told that he is, but it doesn't matter. It would matter. That would matter if I were saying Tucker Carlson said that he's seen the footage and he said it's not what they purport that it is. If I were just relying on his word, then you could say, well, why would you trust him? He's Tucker Carlson. You know, why would you trust him? And that would be a valid objection, right? If you don't trust Tucker Carlson and I'm saying, well, he said that the footage showed nothing really going on with that shaman guy, then that would be a valid objection. He's not trustworthy. So why are you taking his word for it? But I'm not taking his word for it. I don't care if it's Tucker Carlson or it's Rachel Maddow or whoever the hell it is. Rachel Maddow is not posting things that the powerful don't want to see posted. She's publishing the things that the powerful uh, are very happy to see published. You know, she was slagging ivermectin as horse paste, right? She was doing the, she was doing the bidding of Pfizer. Tucker Carlson seems to be doing the opposite. It doesn't matter where you fall on those two people. It really doesn't matter. I'm not trying to convince you to trust him or not trust her. I think the, uh, you can let the uh, track record speak for itself, but, or not, I don't, it, it really doesn't matter. But the point is no one's asking you to trust those people. Just trust the footage. The footage is the footage. Now, if you, if you think, well, he doctored it, it's fake footage. Okay. Make your case that that guy walking through the Capitol building with all those cops around him was doctored. Were there some AI cops sort of added to it? Was he really by himself? Was he actually beating up the cops, but they deleted that and edited it out? Make your case that that's the case. It seems pretty far-fetched that they can edit it that well. Maybe in a couple of years, they'll have that kind of deep fake capability. But to me, that video is pretty persuasive and it doesn't rely on Tucker Carlson's word or his reputation or anything. I don't care who posted it. I don't, I don't need to trust him. I'm looking at the video itself. Like I am an eyewitness to that video. So unless you're alleging that that video is not real, and I think you should watch it first, don't just, you know, don't just argue about stuff that you haven't even looked at. Um, then you, you know, you can allege that seems very persuasive to me, but in general, it's just people, I think the evidence doesn't matter. Like they will figure out some way to not see what their eyes and ears to not understand what their eyes and ears are telling them. And that's the first and most essential command of the party was to distrust your eyes and ears and things like it's the threat to democracy concepts, like threats to democracy concepts, like insurrection, all these concepts that you can get caught up in right? These are all ideas. These are spin on what happened rather than what actually happened that day. And I always looked at what happened that day. And I always thought even worst case scenario, even if they meant to overthrow the government, which again, I don't think the evidence is there. 
it was it was like a voodoo doll. It was so ineffective and so pathetic. These old people with clogged arteries walking around the Capitol and having the officers right there, letting them in the doors just seemed so preposterous that that was a, an insurrection. And these people on TV were comparing it to 9-11. So to me, that's just another psyop. And you know, these are the same people who are trying to shut this down and say it's 9-11 and say it's an insurrection. The same people who told you you wouldn't catch COVID if you took the vaccine. The same people that said the lab leak was a conspiracy theory. The same people that said the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. The same people who told you all of that are now saying that 1-6 is serious and this footage that you're seeing with your own eyes, um, you shouldn't believe that. It was an insurrection. So it's interesting that the stuff is coming out. I'm enjoying it. Having Elon Musk take over Twitter, I have some beef with him. I'll get into that in a little bit, though has been a, a huge positive on net. And I do think the truth is going to come out. There were times where I doubted it, but you realize that people like me and other people who've been basically seeing things, I think, with a you know, clear head, you know, not really wedded to a political narrative, just trying to see what's actually happening. When you see the truth come out and you've been lied to for so long, you tend to be very relentless and repeating yourself. I don't know if some of you who listen to this podcast are saying, well, you're saying stuff that you've said before. And I do tend to repeat myself on a lot of these points because it's really, really urgent that the truth come out, that this truth get acknowledged. And I'm going to beat this horse and it's still alive. It's not a dead horse yet. There are many people who are still holding on to the narrative. I am going to beat this until the truth is acknowledged. And everybody who was lied to and knew they were being lied to is going to keep saying, this is true and you need to acknowledge this. And the thing is, the people who were you know, gaslighting you and the people that were in my mention saying, you're a conspiracy theorist about all these things and have not apologized and have not said, oh, actually that stuff that you were saying turned out to be true. And I was publicly trying to embarrass you. You know, They weren't DMing me and saying, hey, you know, I don't know. Uh, are you sure you, you believe this? Why do you think that? It was public. You know, they were trying to call me out. They don't apologize for that. They haven't said, hey, I was caught up in a mania. I mentioned this last week with that guy who was, you know, with his burner account going after me. None of these people apologize. So most of these people, I actually think the truth is they don't even remember doing it. Like I, I'm going to be charitable and say the reason they haven't apologized is they've kind of blocked it out of their mind that they were caught up in this mania. It was a mania and they were caught up in it, and they actually don't think of themselves as the people that were yelling conspiracy theory for all these things that turned out to be true. And so I think the reason the truth is going to come out is all the people who fell for the narrative, they just are sort of wanting it to go away. They're just sort of pretending that didn't happen. So you've got like one side pretending none of this happened. So that story is, is losing because they're not telling it anymore. They don't even, you know, they conveniently just don't even remember doing it. And then there's the side that remembers every little thing about it and is going to be relentless at making sure it's acknowledged. So which side's going to win? And it's kind of like, you know, they say about propaganda that the, the reason propaganda works or the, the method by which it works is repetition. You keep saying a lie long enough from authorities, you keep lying, and eventually people start to believe it. Repeat a lie long enough, people believe it. But there's always an equal and opposite reaction, right? Every action has an e equal and opposite reaction. It's a law of physics. And the equal and opposite reaction is this, that these lies that were repeated so often, once they're shown to be false, you know, the people who knew it all along and were getting gaslit and, and extremely frustrated by the state of affairs, they're going to repeat the truth just as often, even more often. And we don't care what kind of cognitive dissonance we have to bust through. I don't care if you're angry with me. I don't care if you're still pissed. 
you, you still call me conspiracy. Uh, the other day, a guy called me QAnon for suggesting that the January 6th thing was like a ridiculous psyop. I said, I got called QAnon for saying outdoor masking was creepy. I was QAnon just for being like, hey, outdoor masking doesn't make any scientific sense. It's creeping the hell out of me. It's just compliance. And I feel like these people would burn me at the stake. I got called QAnon for that. So you're calling me QAnon for saying this, this January 6th thing was blown out of proportion by a, a million percent. And it was a bunch of uh, Trumpers who had no effect on anything. And I'm QAnon again. It's not going to work. I don't care how mad you are. I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to keep saying what I'm saying. And I'm going to persuade the persuadable. And then the persuadable are going to be large in number. And by the way, once someone's persuaded, they don't get unpersuaded. Once they open their eyes, they don't go back to sleep. And then there's going to be so many of them that your cognitive dissonance is going to get harder and harder to maintain. And it's going to burst. I saw this great video. I should post it. It was um, tweeted out by uh, Ed Dowd. And it's this Australian guy. And he basically said, it's funny, but it's not funny. It's funny, but it's not funny. He said... The shit, you know, he knew what was going on with these psyops since, you know, 2001 or whatever in Australia. He said, but these people, when they realize the extent to which they've been deceived, they're going to get that red pill in about five minutes. They're going to get 20 year dose of red pill in five minutes and they're going to fucking crack. And it's not, he said, you're going to want to distance yourself from that. You're not going to be, want to be near that. It's funny, but it's not funny, right? I mean, these people are going to fucking crack when they realize what they injected themselves with. The, the information that they took at face value and earnestly acted on, the things they did, the people they told off in their families and persecuted for no reason, when they get this, they're going to get, you know, a many year dose of red pill in five minutes and they're going to fucking crack. And this is why these people are seeing this shaman walk around and they say to me, oh, you're QAnon. They're still trying to hold on because the thing they're holding back is a tsunami. They've boarded up their house and they think it's a, a storm, but it's a tsunami coming. And it's, it's going to rip the house out of the foundations. And that's the thing you want to distance yourself from. And it's not funny, actually, because it's going to be tragic, I think, in many cases. And I think it's coming. I think it's coming. I got into it. Well, I won't mention names, but I got into it with a, a friend of mine who was saying, you know, it's just so hard to get these people, you know, her friends to understand to come around because they're like the last, they're like the neolibs of neolibs. They're like successful people who make a lot of money and they're just invested. They don't really pay attention to shit. They just want to have the beliefs that allow them to be successful, the shared beliefs of their peers and that she can never get any traction with anything with them. And they just think she's just a conspiracy theorist and blah, blah. And I said, you know, first of all, it's coming. I think it's coming and it's going to be hard to resist. And it's going to be some serious pain in terms of cognitive dissonance. But secondly, Let's just say it doesn't come. Let's just say, worst case scenario, they are able to just sort of stay in their cognitive bubble and just be that way. And she's like, well, what's the, down, you know, what's the downside for them? You know, I feel like they, they gaslit and insulted people and, and got away with it. And I'm like, well, there's a pretty heavy price to pay because if your epistemic system is broken, you know, if, if you literally cannot entertain facts contrary to the authority or the narrative, if that's not possible in your epistemic reality, you're going to suffer. And it may be material, it may not. Eventually, it probably will be material. And if you don't understand what's true about health, if you don't understand uh, what's true about the world, there's going to be a price to pay in your life, in, in the ability for you to have a meaningful life. If you're unable to process true versus false, signal versus noise, authoritarianism versus truth-seeking. In fact, if, if that broke in you, 
for social and professional convenience, don't think those people are getting off the hook. It may appear that they're off the hook, but they are in an epistemic prison that uh, you should not be envious of. I mean, in the short term, it might be bliss. You know, they don't have to deal with the fact that powerful factions are not looking out for them. They can still believe that comforting fiction. But in the end, I think that that is a prison you do not want to be in. And even if there's a short-term cost to getting out, get the fuck out as soon as you can. So anyway, that's just going on. And I feel kind of heartened by it. I feel good about that stuff happening. Look, I don't, you know, I'm going to hammer this stuff, but I'm not going to convince individuals. You know, if somebody wants to call me a conspiracy theorist or insult me or QAnon or whatever, they're beneath me. You know, if you can't have a, a conversation about the fact, you don't have to agree about with my conclusions. You may disagree, but if you can't even entertain the video, the things that we debate the video and you want to dismiss it and call me names, you're beneath me. I don't need to convince you. You're not at my epistemic level, right? I, I'm somebody who's really trying to look at the facts. And if you show me facts that are contrary, not some bullshit study commissioned by some journal that was bought off by somebody. I'm talking about things like with your eyes and ears, like, hey, I, I didn't take the vaccine and I'm 38 and I have myocarditis and I didn't take the vaccine and I'm 38 and I have these neurological problems suddenly. Okay, I got I to gotta think about that. Okay, so now unvaccinated people are getting some of these symptoms that seem to be side effects of the vaccine. Maybe I have to rethink that, right? If, if you come at me with a fact, then I have to evaluate it because I have to be loyal to facts. I can't be loyal to some narrative, some political team, which is a joke. It's absurd. I mean, Mitch McConnell and... Chuck Schumer don't want that footage aired. It's not, it's not left versus right. You know, it's just facts versus narrative. I mean, that's really what it's going to be about. And you got to decide what side you're on. All right. A couple of personal things. That's just, you know, sort of the political global stuff going on. I mentioned this a few times and I wrote a post on it. Uh, I've been running three times a week and doing different things, intervals and longer runs and different varieties of, of training. And I had posted this thing like two months ago, but I never published it about, you know, all my training regimen and improving my times and stuff because I just kind of realized, I don't know, I'm just, that's, <laughs> it's not really that interesting to me and I'm not going to set any records. And, you know, the whole idea of like, oh, here's a reality show, nearly 52 year old man trying to, you know, break an X minute mile and stuff. It's like, I don't know, I, I guess it's kind of exciting for a little bit, but that's not really I think what I'm doing. And if I do that, I'll probably quit pretty soon because it's just torture to keep pushing yourself. And I kind of felt like I had a little bit of an epiphany that pushing yourself and constantly trying to improve your time is kind of a form of resistance, right? You're kind of in your head thinking, how can I do better? How can I measure myself rather than just doing the running? You know, the running clears my head. The exercise just makes you feel so much better and clearer and more uh, able able mentally, psychologically to deal with shit. And so I just stopped going fast. I'm going slower. You know, I was doing a uh, 120, 400 and being super out of breath and dreading it every time. I was going to write about how I'd improved to 119 and I could go faster. But I just did like a 134 uh, last week, which is fast, but it's not fast, fast. And it was fun. It felt good. It was like, I was just running, you know, for the enjoyment of it, just running fast for one lap for the enjoyment of it. It's not even a six minute mile for a quarter mile. It's nothing, but it felt good. You know, I was a little bit out of breath, walked it off for hundred meters, but I just felt good doing the 134. The 119 hurts, you know, and think, oh, if it doesn't, if it doesn't hurt, you're not going to improve. But funny, I took Tai Chi for a year when I was like 25. And I remember a couple things that the guy said, he's a goofy guy. 
two things. One was that 15 minutes of his practice was like four hours of my practice and four hours of his practice was like 15 minutes of his master's practice, his teacher's practice. And the other thing was, if you want to get strong, do 70% of your max. Don't do 100%. Yeah, you'll get a little stronger at 100%, but at 70, you know, you're not, you're not, you're just building more strength without resistance. And he said, if you have an injury, do 40%. And I was a little bit asthmatic, exercise-induced asthma. I never had an asthma attack as a kid. And I, I'd often get winded during sports, depending on the conditions of the air and whatever. And I feel like that's like a, an injury. It's like, you know, pushing myself with something I dread cardiovascularly. And going easy just feels good. It just feels good. It makes me want to go to the track knowing, oh, I'm not going to kill myself this day. I'm not going to try to see my absolute max. I'm just going to go easy. And then how the absolute max is a form of resistance. It's a way to get yourself to quit. It's to make it miserable enough and to constantly be measuring yourself to the point where you're building up a resentment toward it. Whereas just doing the work, just doing it and enjoying it and doing it at a, at a tolerable level doesn't build the same kind of resistance and keeps you at it for the long haul. You know, slow and steady wins the race. It's the long haul. It's the guy who does the work for years, not three months of improving his time. And then ah, I just kind of got out of that. You know, it's, it's staying with it. And so it's been part of my routine. It's actually helped me think more clearly. I feel good about it. And I, I started thinking about this and I started thinking about the uh, Kapil Gupta book that I bought that was pretty good. And he's talking about the life of the Buddha. The Buddha becomes enlightened. But before he becomes enlightened, he uh, hangs out with the ascetics, the people who kind of torture themselves and deny themselves all forms of pleasure and enjoyment to become enlightened. So he almost starved himself to death. So the story goes, he was you know, not eating food. He was not doing all the pleasurable things of life to sort of you know, become enlightened. And that failed. It totally failed. He almost died, according to the story. And he only became enlightened through the middle path, which was neither uh, embracing the pleasures nor rejecting them. And this made me think about it. You know, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like rebellion when you're a teenager, right? If you you don't like the jocks, you don't really get in with that scene at school. So you're the kid who's got the tattoos and listens to heavy metal, right? They're, it's resisting. You're making it more real by resisting it. You're not just apart from it. You're sort of protesting it. The thing you protest, you make more real in some ways. You're, you're not just saying, I don't subscribe to this I don't even think about this. It's not even a part of my life. And you're taking a stance. You're, you're basically creating more resistance to it. You're, reje you're actively rejecting it rather than just simply having no interest in it. And I feel like some of this stuff, the life hacks, the fasting, the pushing, I'm not saying I'll stop fasting or stop running. It's just the fasting as a, look how good, I, look, I'm fasting. And now I fasted and I did this. And then I ate the protein after the fast. And then I did this hack and I did that hack. And all these things that you're constantly in your mind checking the boxes and telling yourself how well you're doing. It's kind of like just following the ascetics. It's just, you know, this constant striving in a different way. And that doesn't mean to reject, you know, I think fasting is healthy. And, but I started, you know, on Monday, instead of fasting, I'd, I'd run and then I'll eat like some fish or something. And then I'll fast till the next day because the purity of my fast is just not important. It doesn't mean anything. You know, I'll be dead in, say, 100 years, 50 years. I hope to still be alive, 102, almost 102. But um, in 100 years, I'll be dead. And it, it, I'm not going to get some prize at the end because I, oh, my fast was, was pure. So I don't know. It just was a, 
bit of an epiphany I had that like run more slowly, uh, take it easy, uh, enjoy the run and don't make it a thing. You know, you're, you're not in some reality show. You're just taking care of your health and, and helping clear your mind by going outdoors, breathing in some fresh air, getting some sun and going for a nice run three times a week because you like it. It's part of your routine by choice. That was just one thing. Another uh, couple of things. I got to run soon. Shit. I, I should have started the podcast earlier. I started thinking about what I'm doing, you know, like uh, I'm doing these podcasts. I'm doing the uh, chrysalis.substack.com. And, you know, and I was trying to say, oh, subscribe and share this and contribute if you can and all these things. And I see a lot of other people doing similar things. There are a lot of people that, you know, they're, they felt their mission the last couple of years was to say what they took to be true. And they did the same. And some of them have much, much larger followings than I do. And I'll see them say some rant or something. And I'll think it's kind of based on be like, oh, that's a good rant. And then you'll see like subscribe to my Substack or you know, contribute via Patreon or whatever their, their message is. And I don't know, there's something that just sits wrong with me about that, like a false note clanging. It's kind of like, hey, look, I just told you some truth. Now, now give me some money for that. And it's like, well, I quit my job. I don't have any income. So this is it. I'm your truth teller that you pay to tell you the truth. You know, it's kind of like, well, there's, there's a thousand of us, right? Like Substack's great. Like I can, I can say what I want to say, express myself and payment, pro, payment processor set up on it, get paid for it. But it's great if you're the only one doing it. If you're a thousand of you doing it, I joked about in the piece that I, they should call it Haystack and all the contributors should be called Needles because there's a million people doing the same thing. The, the idea of like, well, what, what's your new gig? Oh, my new gig is uh, podcasting and uh, telling the truth. And how's that going? You making any money? Well, you know, a little here and there. And, and then you say, well, I, I need you guys to, to contribute more because I'm not making a living on this. And it's sort of like, well, so what am I asking? Well, I'm saying, well, these people, I, I quit my job so I could speak the truth. Not that Rotowire ever, uh, you know, I just knew that I had partners and there was the possibility of it harming the company if, if I said certain things. And so, you know, it was just a consideration I no longer have. But, you know, it was, it was something. I quit my job. I could say whatever the fuck I want. Nobody can really easily cancel me at least. And so, okay, so I'm doing that. But then it's like, well, all right, so I need some money here. Come on, come on, guys. And who's the money coming from? It's coming from people who didn't quit their jobs. It's coming from people who weren't able to necessarily express themselves in any way they see fit. And you're saying this money that you earn from your job, you know, the job that you have because you follow the rules of the job or the presumed presumptive rules that, you know, realistically you could get canned if you said the wrong thing, you know, you're still living off of that job. If you're, if you're dependent on people who have that job to give you money, right? You, you freed yourself, you freed your conscience, but they weren't able to, they had to feed their families or make a living or whatever. And now you're saying, give me money for telling the truth. And it's just a bit like, well, some people will, they appreciate it, but you know, I mean, it's, you don't really have a job anymore. You know, you, you, you went down, you made this choice and you knew it, right? You knew it. And if, if the choice was, well, I'll tell the truth and say what I want to say, and I'll be assured of an income anyway, then everybody would tell the truth, right? Everybody would quit and just tell the truth. They, they all get money. Their Patreon would fill up be like, hey, let's all tell the truth. But the fact is there are consequences to not having a job. And one of those consequences is not having a steady paycheck and you're not entitled to uh, anything. And so it's like, what's the point of doing it then? It's, it's not like there's some reward awaiting you. The only reason to do it, it's not your new job. It's not your new gig. It's not something the market is demanding. The market's not saying, hey, 
we want to buy some of this. You're not servicing a need, but you are doing it because you have to. Right? I said a few uh, podcasts ago, I like it when people contribute. And I like to say, well, contribute if you want to see this thing continue. But the truth is, it's going to continue whether you contribute or not. Right? That's the truth because I just need to do it. I need to say shit. It's what I like doing. I started doing it and now I like doing it. I like saying it. I'm glad people are listening and I, I need to say it. So that's the reason to do it. It just kind of occurred to me. And I remember this guy, and I know if the Roto guys ever listen to this, they'll remember this guy. We had this, uh, we, we went to finally get health insurance. I think it was like 2001, 2002. We just uh, restarted RotoWire. And the insurance salesman came to the office and his name was Steve Favor. And he made this pitch. He said, you know, my name's Steve Favor. And I want you to think of this like I'm doing you a favor. <laughs> He's a hilarious guy. And then I asked him, I said, well, what if you opt out? Like, what's the deal? You know, I was, I was actually more asking about like getting your own insurance outside the plan. And he was like, well, you could do that, but it's kind of like peeing in your bed. He's like, at first it feels like a relief and it's all warm, but then it's cold and wet. And he made that analogy, which is just, I thought, I remembered it to this day because it was so bizarre. It's like, I was in my thirties, like nobody wets the bed in their thirties, but it's kind of like, oh, you quit your job to, uh, to tell the truth. That's great. That's great. It's like peeing in the bed. And then you're like, oh, wait a second. I don't have a job. And uh, the uh, Patreon's drying up. It felt really good at first. Anyway, it just occurred to me as I see so many people doing it. Yeah, I don't think it's sustainable. I think, you know, you're, it's great to tell the truth. And if you have to, you should. If you absolutely are driven to say what you need to say, if you're a person kind of like me that just has to express themselves, always kind of been that way, um, you should express yourself. But just realize you're still going to uh, have to figure out the other piece. This isn't the job. It's sort of like you're, you're, you're choosing the life of a creative person, an artist. And I remember it's a long time ago, my 20s, I went to see this Buddhist monk and the guy was the real deal. I've talked about him before. He was an enlightened, a holy person. I mean, the, the real thing, you just knew the second you saw him, he was just radiating this peace. It was like physical, like you could just, his vibe was extremely powerful. You could just, it was obvious. I, I can't say any more clearly than that. And I remember asking him, I was in college and I said, you know, I want to kind of be a writer, but I don't know how to make money and, you know, I don't know what to do. And he started laughing. He was Korean. He has Korean accent. And he said, uh, business and law. You study business and law. He's like, you want to do art? Ha, 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 ha. You pumping gas. Ha, 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 <laughs> Just like that. And I went to law school. I don't want to say it was solely because of that. But, you know, he was right. He was right. I mean, I, law school didn't pay off because I ended up working for Rotowire, but it was a business that we ran and it wasn't totally wasted that I knew something about the law and it wasn't totally wasted that, you know, I was involved in a business. I'm glad I was, it was great to be involved in a real business. You don't want the joke to be on you with, you know, a lot of artists, you know, had day jobs and they, uh, a lot of artists, even great artists weren't even known until after they died. So you can't do it to make money. Just an observation. I'm going to write about that. I've got like 50 other things to talk about, but I guess I got to run because I got to pick up Sasha Maybe I'll end on one quick thing. There's a Buddhist text called the Heart Sutra. I think it's actually long, but there's a part that I knew when I was reading about that stuff in college. And it was, uh, form is emptiness or form is empty, but emptiness is also empty. Therefore, emptiness is form. Sort of a key part of the Heart Sutra. Form is emptiness, but emptiness is empty. Therefore, emptiness is form. And there's that IQ meme, right? Where you have like the simpleton guy who just says like, buy Bitcoin and the 
the midwit who's like, no, Bitcoin boils the oceans and it's going to be shut down by government. He's got all these reasons. And then the smart guy's like, buy Bitcoin. Or, you know, the virus came from a lab. The dumb guy's like, came from a lab. Like, no, that's conspiracy theory. They, they haven't proven it genetically by the sequencing. And then the smart guy's like, virus came from the lab. Is that meme, which probably most of you have seen. And I was thinking the Heart Sutra is that meme. The, the simpleton just takes form as form. He takes things at face value. He doesn't realize that form is empty. He's just like, yeah, this is what it seems like. But the midwit realizes that form is empty, that gender is fluid. It's a concept. It's not a real thing. You know, the, the, the simpleton is like, there's a man and a woman. It's simple. And the uh, midwit can get caught up in all these complex concepts. Well, what is really gender? And what does it mean to be this? And but the thing is, like all of that stuff, all of that conceptualization is itself empty. So your <laughs> emptiness is form. And the smart guy, again, is back to like, yeah, there's two genders. All this stuff, these are just concepts. It's just mumbo jumbo. It's just academia. It's just the latest protocol, the, the latest thing, the current thing that you're supposed to believe. It was an insurrection. It was a threat to democracy. All of that stuff, these are just concepts. What actually happened? What actually happened is what happened. So I'm probably not doing that justice, but I thought the, uh, the original IQ meme was uh, 500 BC. I think it's the Heart Sutra. I'll probably write something about that too. I remember reading about that when I was in college. All right, that's it for now. Till next time.